It's War Week at Revival Tabernacle. Thank you for joining us as we lead youth from all over the country in a week-long experience of missions and service. Highland Park and Detroit, Michigan are being blessed right now by our youth teams with the work of their hearts and their hands. They are cleaning and beautifying parks and streets and stretching a prayer line across the city on Woodward Avenue. Every morning and evening this week, our pastors and guest speakers are challenging them with the Word of God, inviting them to take steps towards spiritual growth and encouraging them to put their faith into action. Thank you for listening to this special podcast from War Week 2016. I'm going to ask if we could do this tonight. Can we just bring the house lights up so that we could all be together? And uh, there we go. Just bring them up so uh, everybody can take notes. It's great to see you guys. If, uh, if you, well, I know that you just heard here for 20 years or so, been um, a part of ministry, investing and serving in Chicago area and Naperville, and uh, so excited to be here tonight. I want to say how honored I am that uh, I get to share with you guys tonight, and I want to say how blessed I have been to be able to get to know Pastor Devin. This is not just one of those things that we're just going about and saying, okay, they're going to get up and they're going to spend time. Telling. I really believe that uh, over the years being here in War Week that I developed a real heart for this area going door to door, serving, working in the community. It's tough. Whenever you invest in some place, wherever your treasure, wherever you put your treasure, that's where your heart's going to be. So you put your time and you put your sweat and you put your blood even some years uh, here in, in, in even if it's just a week of time over, over the course of years, you start to develop a real heart for this place. I really believe that the best is yet to come here for Revival Tabernacle. I really believe that God is going to use this church to bring real transformation to this community. And so it's, it's, it's something that I counted as, a, as an honor to be able to come and to be a part of investing here and, and to invest in you guys tonight. Now, War Week started, I don't even know how many years ago. I'm not really good at the history of these things. But it started here in Detroit because, uh, in part because of a friendship that, that uh, had happened between Pastor Tim and I. And I know Pastor Tim was thinking, I want to bring this War Week thing from Louisiana to um, up here to Detroit where it belongs. And I, I, and I was saying, hey, I want to have an opportunity for our students to serve in, in an urban setting. I was like, Pastor Tim, can we come to the church? And he said, yeah, let's do this thing. And it really started just because of, just because of friendship. And out of, that, out of those friendships... With Pastor Tim and Pastor Chili, I had I had a late lunch with Pastor Chili Chilton today. It was great seeing him and talking to him. He sends his greetings here. He's really excited that uh, War Week is back on. Um, but it all started because of those relationships. And part of it for me was that I, I thought to myself, you know what? I've got a youth group. I've got a bunch of students. But we don't need... Like, we spent the summertime investing in them and seeking after God. We don't need to go to a camp somewhere and get right with God. We need to go somewhere and we need to get on with God. That was exactly what it was. We said, this is not a get right with God week. This is a get on with God week. That was the idea. And so, hopefully, you guys are a part of another generation of, of, a, of a kind of a fresh start for that sort of experience of young people who say, you know what, we're, we're going to... 
We're going to get, we're, we're right with God. We want to get on with God, and we want to serve, and we want to work, and we want to do the work of the kingdom of God in the places where it's needed, needed most. You guys are part of that, and I'm very excited about that. I'm really glad that uh, you're a part of that. This place has been a place that I have heard from God. So when I walk into this sanctuary, there's a lot of feelings. I wept on the carpet I don't know right there, I don't know how many times, but I remember one distinct moment, the night that Winky Prattney shared his testimony. I don't know why, what it was, but here was a, a father in my life, a spiritual father in my life, who just shared his testimony, and I don't know what happened, but there was this sense in me of just being overcome with gratitude that God had placed that man in my life, that God had been faithful to me in that way, because if I could tell you my story, and I won't um, do that tonight, but if I could, he had played such a critical role and had been so gracious. I just remember weeping on the carpet right there. I remember moments God speaking to me in this place. There are some young adults who are here. I'll bet there are some leaders who are here tonight for just that same reason, that Six, seven years ago, at some point in time, you came to Warwick as a student and God spoke to you. And when you heard that Warwick was back on, you said, well, I'm going to go again because that was the place where God spoke to me. There are some students here. The reason that you're here is because you heard that God spoke to somebody else at War Week. You heard the story about that week. You heard somebody talking about it. You heard about the, the, the moments like this of worship, of prayer, of, of the word, whatever it was. And you heard that story and you said, man, I want to go there. Now, I want to encourage you because I, I actually, before I even get into what, what I'm talking about tonight, I just want to tell you, I want, I want us to go back to when Elijah was on the run, okay? He's had this great moment of victory with the prophets of Baal, I don't know if you remember that, and he thinks that this is it, things are going to turn around. He sends word ahead to Jezebel and Ahab. He says, I'm coming to you. And I think Elijah at that moment thought, they're going to they're gonna bow their knees, right? And he gets word back from Jezebel and says, if at this time tomorrow you aren't dead, then may my gods deal ever so severely with me, right? And Elijah gets scared. And he goes on the run. God... The angel of the Lord ministers to him, and the Bible says that he runs 40 days, or he travels 40 days, and he travels 40 nights to a place called Horeb, the mountain of God. And the Bible says that there at Horeb, he finds this cave, and he goes to it, and he listens for the word of the Lord. Now, the word there isn't just a cave. It's like a cleft. It's just like a little inlet in the mountain there. He finds that, and he goes there to listen for God's word. Now, why would Elijah go on such a crazy long journey to go to that specific cleft in the rock to be able to hear from God? Let me tell you why he did that or why I believe he did that. Because Horeb had some history, the place where he was. Horeb was called Sinai before that. It was the place where Moses had asked God to see his glory. And God said, well, you can't look upon my glory directly, but what I'm going to do, Moses, is I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock, and I'm going to pass by you, and you're going to get to see my afterwards. That's what he, literally in the Hebrew what it is. You're going to get to see my wake, and that's going to be enough for you. It was that same cleft where God had shown himself to Moses. Elijah says, I'm going there because I need to hear from God. See, some of you guys are here, I think a lot of you students are here because you heard this is the place where God shows himself. But I want 
this is just this is just the word here, real quick. This is what happens. Elijah's in the cleft of that rock in the cave there, and there's a wind. Just like the wind of the Spirit that had split the Red Sea, that had split the Jordan River so many hundreds of years before Elijah. Just, and then after the wind comes an earthquake, remember? Just like the earthquake maybe that the, that the, the people of Israel had seen when they were there at Mount Sinai, when the, when the mountain shook. And then after that, there's a fire, just like the fire that was consuming, but not, that was burning in the burning bush, but not consuming it. Just like all those ways that God had been before, but God was not in any of those things, Right? It says that after that, there was a still, small voice that spoke to Elijah. God was wanting to speak in a different way to Elijah. I think the way that he said it was, Elijah, good move. Come in here to the cleft of this rock. But I want you to know I'm not going to speak to you in the same way that I spoke to your forefathers. And I'm not going to speak the same thing to you that I spoke to your forefathers. Because i got something to say to you in a different way today. And I want you young people to be encouraged. Good move coming to Warwick. Good move coming to the place where God has spoken before. But there's a fresh word. There's a new word. There are new things that God wants to speak to you. Things that he never spoke to me. Things that he never spoke to Pastor Devin. Things that he never spoke to Pastor Tim. So listen carefully to what God is speaking to you this week. Listen carefully to what God is speaking to you this week. These are not just moments where we kind of check off the list, worship, check, good song. Oh, great time, you know, check. We, we had a small group discussion. I'm saying, this is the place. You're in the cleft of the rock. So listen and seek and press in until you hear from God. That needs to be the heart that we have here this week. We're going to pray in just a minute. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. I know I just gave you a little sermonette there, but I'm just, that was in, inter, introduction here, okay? Introduction because this is, when I, when I was praying about this week, I don't, sometimes I go back and forth and think, there was no doubt in my mind what I was going to share as soon as I, as soon as I found out I was speaking here this week. I don't know why. I think that God has something to say specifically to some of you. And I'm, I've been pleased, I've been in the sessions here and listening to what God has been saying and what everybody's been sharing and the things that have come out. And I feel like that we are set up for this moment. Luke chapter 15, and then we're going to pray together right now. Lord, thank you tonight that you have a word for every young person, for every leader in this place. Yours is a, the living word. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. So, God, I pray that you would judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. Weigh our hearts out tonight, God, and show us the things that you see. Speak to us, Lord. We're listening. We want to respond to you tonight. We thank you, God, for your love and your grace that you would gather us in this place, God, that you would speak to us in such a way and that you would send us out, Lord, in your power to do your work. We praise you for that today. Hallelujah, God. We love you in Jesus' name. And God's people said amen. Amen. Now, before we get into the scripture, let me say, for, for some of you, I know the folks who are from NXT, they know, they know me, they know a little bit about me, maybe not everything about me, but I want you to be introduced to some very special people in my life. First of all, I want you to meet my beautiful wife, Jessie. She's right over here. She's sitting there with our, 
She is, hey, can you wave, Jesse? Because there's some people standing up. They want to see. There she is. And then she's holding our baby daughter. She's three and a half months old, Ava Grace. There she is. Give it up for Ava Grace, doing what she does best. <laughs> Super uh, thankful because of the work that God has done in my life. And I will just say, God will take care of you. God will take care of you if you trust him. And as a matter of fact, sometimes even when you're struggling to trust him, God will take care of you. God will take care of you. And I would just say, Jesse is one of the wonderful ways that God has taken care of me. And, and Ava, man, what a beautiful, beautiful gift. I love being a dad. Let me tell you about being a dad. First of all, you get a little paranoid that you just, I always smell spit up no matter what. I, I'm just, I'm like, I think I smell spit up. Even if it's not for real, you smell it. It's, that's not the best part, okay? That's the downside. But the upside is you don't care what anybody thinks anymore because you're like, I, what do you, I don't care what you think. I make my own people now, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't care what you people think. I make my own people. So that is the best part. It's a huge power trip being a dad. You just love it. I am so thankful <laughs> I'm so thankful uh, just for God's blessing in that way. Luke chapter 15, this is actually a story about a father, and we're going to talk about it right here. But let's, let's get the setting right. It says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the temple leaders began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So here's the setting. Jesus is at a dinner. He's at a party, actually. He's at a party, and he's at a party with a bunch of sinners. Now, every time people would come at Jesus like this, Jesus had a way of responding. He would tell parables, and in this instance here in chapter 15, he tells a parable about a lost sheep, and then he tells a parable about a woman with a lost coin. The shepherd goes looking for the sheep. The woman is searching for the coin, and then he has a longer story about a father and two sons. Okay? Jesus always liked to do this thing, which was instead of responding directly to people's criticisms, he would tell these little stories called parables. How many guys know about that? Parables. Okay, good. When his disciples asked him why he talked in parables, Jesus said, I do it to conceal the truth. <laughs> it's interesting, right? I do it to hide the truth. Let's, and his disciples were like, wait, 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 wait. let's rewind here. <laughs> good teacher. Why are you trying to hide the truth from it? This is the thing. This is one of the nuances in the Bible that adds to the authenticity of the Jesus story. That if I were making propaganda, if I were writing a gospel that weren't true, if I weren't actually drawing from true events, I would never choose to make my, the founder of my religion and the good teacher Jesus be the guy who actually was trying to hide the truth from everybody. Not only that, I, would, I wouldn't make those disciples seem so dumb because they were about to have to lead this movement after Jesus left. This is one of those marks of authenticity that, that, that folks who call themselves textual critics, they say, oh, this is the mark that this is actually really, this really happened historically speaking. This is what Jesus says. He says, I tell parables to hide the truth. I want to sneak it by those who aren't ready to receive it, and I want to deliver it to the hearts of those who are ready. You see, in the kingdom of God, and there's going to be a few things that you can write down tonight, in the kingdom of God, a right heart always comes before right understanding. 
In the kingdom of God, a right heart always comes before right understanding. That's really important that you know that. Because you can be really clever, you can be really smart, but wisdom from God does not come except to the humble of heart. It just doesn't happen. And so Jesus says, I'm telling these parables because they conceal the truth about God's kingdom from those who are proud, and they deliver it to the hearts of those who are humble. So here, we're going to listen to this tonight, to, this, to the last of those three stories that Jesus told. Here in the house with these sinners around him, and then in the courtyard area of these kind of the open-air Middle Eastern house with, with the, the religious leaders and those who are criticizing him, standing on the outside, not willing to go in, lest they be soiled by the sinfulness of the place. Jesus is going to tell them a story And it's going to give them a radically different understanding of the Heavenly Father. And it's even going to point to some radical truth about their own brokenness and about their own sin. So I'm going to read the whole story to you right now. We're going to read from the message translation so you know it's going to be cool. You know what I mean? But I like how that message translation kind of goes through these through, through the narratives like this. And we're going to read it in, in its entirety. And then I'm going to talk about it. I got two points and two questions for you. Jesus said, there once was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided his property between them, and it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all throughout that country, and he began to hurt And he signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs and the pig slop, but no one would give him any. Well, that brought him to his senses. And he said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son, so take me on as a hired hand. And he got right up, and he went home to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and then get a calf and prepare it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here. He was dead and now alive. He was lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in, and as he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Calling over to one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on, and he told him, your brother came home Your father has ordered a feast because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look, you, how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? And then this son of yours 
who's thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast? His father said, you don't understand, son. You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours, but this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. This has to be one of the classic stories that Jesus ever told, one of the best-known stories, partly because we can all relate. And everybody who was listening to Jesus when he first told it, they could relate to that story of father and children. I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up with the dad in my house. My dad liked to spend time with me. I mean, he tried to spend time with me. I didn't really always like to spend, you know, I was one of those kids. Like, he always wanted to do stuff that I wasn't interested in. He wanted to take me fishing. I could never get into fishing because we weren't fishing for survival. We weren't fishing. We would just go out and we would float around on a lake for hours at a time in the sun. And then, and then maybe we would catch a fish or two. And then if we caught it, you know what we would do with it? We would just throw it back in. I could never understand what the point of that was. Are we, just, are we just trying to make the fish late to wherever he was going? You know, so that the fish gets down there to his friend, and they're like, bro, where have you been? He's like, I got caught, man. I'm sorry. I got caught. They're like, no, you didn't. He's like, yeah, look at my lip. <laughs> right there. It's right. I mean, I would try and, my dad liked to spend time with me. We'd, we'd go fishing. We'd do all that other stuff. I was lucky enough to have that. I can relate to a story about a dad and his sons. And I think probably everybody in Jesus' day could relate in some way to that too. Now, you can too, whether you have your own father or you've just observed others. This is a story that makes sense. But the problem is, after Jesus begins the story, there's this unexpected turn because the son comes to his dad. The younger son comes to his dad and says, I want my inheritance right now. Now, let me just break it down for you. In that culture, the way it would go is a father would pass on his inheritance to his sons and to the oldest son would go a double portion of inheritance. So if you do the math, two parts to the oldest son, one part to the youngest son, three parts all together, the youngest said, said, I want my third right now, Dad. But the problem with this was that that didn't happen. That inheritance wasn't handed out until the dad died. So some of you guys may already be aware of this detail, but I just want to break it down for some of you guys. Essentially, the younger son is coming to his dad and saying, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me what is mine. This is what he's saying. Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't really want you. <laughs> so here's point number one that you can write down. The younger son wanted the father's stuff, but he didn't want the father. This is an important thing to note because this is a truth about every one of us sitting here. 
In the Garden of Eden, if we go way back to the beginning, there was a tree, the Bible says, whose fruit would bring eternal life to those who would eat it. And another tree whose fruit would bring the knowledge of good and evil to all those who would eat it. How, or let me just ask the question, why would God put those trees in the garden except that it was his purpose ultimately that every one of his children would have eternal life and be able to discern between good and evil? That's why those trees were there, not to make a temptation, but because I believe God wanted to ultimately share that fruit, but it was to happen in God's time and in God's way. And here is what happened when Adam and Eve chose to disobey the Father. They said, I want that stuff, but I don't care about you, God. Many, many years ago, a man named St. Augustine, in a book just titled Confessions, he said that the root problem of mankind is not the actions or the decisions that we make that are sinful in their nature. He said the real root of this is that what we love gets out of order. What we love gets out of order. We love the stuff that God gives more than the giver of that stuff. We love the things of God. And so here's what I want you to write down. Disordered loves are the root of every sin. Disordered loves. The younger son came to his dad and said, Dad, I, I like this stuff and I want to use this stuff, but you, Dad, are just a means to an end. And I want this stuff, but I don't want you. I don't know if you guys are ready for this. If you're, if you're ready to go a little bit deeper, say amen. I mean, you came all this way. I feel like you should, I feel like you should go just a little bit deeper. Paul gives an outline of this. In the first chapter of the book of Romans, verses 21 to 25, I'm going to sum up the story for you. You can go and read it later. But he says this is what all of mankind did. The first thing they did is they exchanged God for the stuff that he made. That's what, that's what he says. And then the second thing that happened to them after they did that was that their minds got confused and darkened, and they, they, it was given over to foolish thinking. And then the third thing that happened was that their bodies were given over to sin. That's the progression that Paul lines out. And I'm going to come back to that a little bit later and help you see what, you know, kind of how Paul comes back to that later on. But this is the story of everybody here. Unfortunately, religious commitments aren't the cure. Believe it or not, coming to War Week and working in the heat all day, that's not even the cure. Because religion is one of the chief ways that we try to get, get God's stuff without needing God. As a matter of fact, when we get religious, it gets really dangerous. Think of the people who were critical of Jesus, to whom Jesus was speaking at this minute. They were the religious leaders of the day. And they wanted God's stuff. But they had completely missed out on God. A lot of churchgoers today... Go to church in the hopes that they can get some good stuff from God. I mean, let's just call it like it is. They want the blessing of God, but not the God of the blessing. They want the stuff from God. You can always, you can always tell those who are in it for the stuff because their commitment lasts only as long as the good times keep coming. They have no time. I want you to hear this. They have no time for lingering in God's presence 
or for stuff like prayer and like worship. They have no time for that stuff because if it's not about them, if, it's not, if, it, if it doesn't bring some kind of immediate gratification, then well, I don't have any time for that. Remember Moses. And there God is leading him out of Egypt and toward the promised land and the, the people of God just, they're messing up and God says, hey, listen, if I stay with you all, if I stay with you all, I'm going to end up getting angry and destroying you. So Moses, you go on. I'll send the angel with you. And, and uh, you can go to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. Remember how Moses responded to God? He said, God, we don't want, Moses said, I'm not going anywhere without you, God. I don't want your stuff, God. I want you. That's what made Moses so special to God. That's what stayed the hand of judgment from God toward Israel because Moses, one man who loved God first and God's stuff after that, actually changed the scenario. You can actually be in ministry and still miss this. God, I want the fulfillment. I want the meaning. I want the respect. I want the pats on the back. I want the admiration of others. I want a big stage to be on. I want people who think I'm great. But the question is, do you want him? You can always tell who these people are. Because they love talking about ministry, but they never talk about Jesus. They love talking about structures and plans and strategies. But there's no, their, their eyes don't light up when somebody talks about Jesus. Young people, I'm determined, I want to see some, I'm praying for you that, this, that we would be different here, that God would turn our hearts tonight, that there would not be a moment where we would say, God, I want your stuff, but I don't really need you. We didn't come here to War Week for that, did we? We came here because we love the Father. Everybody who listens to Jesus tell this story at this moment in time is thinking, oh, after the son said that to his dad, the next part of the story is going to be, and the dad smacked down his son and drove him out of the house and said, don't ever come back. Because <laughs> that was what you would do in that culture if a son disrespected a dad like that, right? That's what would happen. They all expected that, but Jesus takes the story a different way, right? The Bible says, Jesus said that the father actually divided up his life. The word there wasn't even just his property. The word there is, is, is beyond. It's, it's bios. It's, it's biology. The, the father divided up his life and said, here. Now, Jesus' hearers had never seen a father like that. See, when you and I are rejected by someone we love, what do we do? We retaliate. We want to do everything we can so that we don't feel the hurt, Right? We want to say, what? I, well, I didn't, I didn't need you anyway. I break up with you first, right? <laughs> I didn't need you anyway. I didn't, we, 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 whatever, if a friend betrays us, what do we do? We don't, we don't sit quietly. We try and burn them down online, right? That's the, the normal human response to that sort of stuff. But the father that Jesus describes was really different, wasn't he? 
See, real love can endure the pain of rejection. And the father in Jesus' story endures the agony of this rejection. He's humble enough to not retaliate, and he's loving enough to give his life to this younger son. And he lets him go. So the young man goes. Jesus says he goes, and he lives it up. Right? And he doesn't just, I mean, the, the, the older brother makes it clear later on. It wasn't like he was just, you know, um, going somewhere and, and just drinking, you know, like sparkling grape juice or something like that. I mean, he was, he was for real, like, living hard in the party scene, right? It says that he was there living it up. Now, at one point, Jesus says, the party ended. Right? And this is where I think all of his Instagram posts stopped. All the Snapchats. So, uh, nobody likes to put on their story what happens after the party, right? Nobody posts anything on Instagram about what it looks like, what they felt like after the party has ended. Everybody just wants to show what it was like when things got turned. Oh, that party was so lit. But then they never show the part where it got so lame, right? They never show the part afterwards where everybody felt terrible about themselves, where they were walking around and they weren't really, they were feeling bad. They knew they disobeyed. They disrespected themselves and disrespected others. They never really show that part. But that is always a part of the story, guys. I want you to be sure of that, that you know that. The only way to cover that up, those feelings up, generally speaking, is to just keep partying. That's why people do that, I really believe. You see, sin always breaks us down to our smallest selves. It breaks us down to our smallest selves. This is what the younger son found out. The money dried up, the party ended, and then his friends were gone. And he realizes, I'm not even a son anymore. I'm nothing. It diminishes us. Young people, I want you to see this no matter what the posts look like, no matter what. Trust God that, it, that even though sin might diminish you, God is the one who actually brings out the most unique expressions of goodness and creativity and beauty in you. Everything in that party scene looks the same to me. It was years ago, but I was there. There are always two drunk girls in a fight crying in a corner and yelling at each other. It's always a part of every party scene. Nobody ever posts that stuff, but that's just a part of it, all right? There's always people who are passed out in their puke. There's always stuff that's just gross going on. It's not great. It just, it just diminishes people. The younger son is in this distant place, and he runs out of money, and he runs out of friends, and now he's just completely stuck. I was thinking about this. It's not a good thing to be stuck in a foreign place. If this has ever happened to you, it's never good. Now, fun fact about Pastor Tim, who's going to be speaking tomorrow night. This would never happen to Pastor Tim. I've traveled to a few different places around the world with Pastor Tim, and let me tell you, I've, I've died laughing because the man will always have what he calls like a go pack on him, all right? <laughs> he is always prepared. He has his passport, two $50 bills, <laughs> credit cards, whatever else. He, he'll always keep it on him. I'm like, 
I'm like, why do you have that on you? Like, we're, we're, we're staying at a, at a, you know, a good hotel. Here we are in this place. He's like, I'm always ready in case something goes down, you know, in case I got to get out of the country. I'm like, so you're going to leave me behind? He's like, yeah, yeah I'm going to leave you behind. <laughs> the son is in this distant place. He's all by himself. He's down on his luck, and then he has this memory that comes to his mind. He says, I remember my dad's house. You see, inside the heart of every prodigal is the distant memory and, and the faint longing for the God who made them and who loves them. you got to know that, guys. It's the basis, it's the way I've done ministry for all of these years is the belief that in the heart of every prodigal is already there the distant memory that I was made for something more than all this junk that diminishes and belittles me. Even prodigal living doesn't erase the memory. It distracts from it. But here's what happens. Once all that stuff runs out, that's what happened to the young man. He's sitting there. He says, wait, I remember what it was like in my dad's house. Now, our job as God's people is to act and to speak in ways that awaken that memory in the prodigals around us. You see, that's what you're doing when you're out on the street here during the day. You're, you're cleaning up somebody else's sidewalk. You're cleaning up somebody else's alley, somebody else's park, and they're looking out the window going, now why would those people do that? That is such a good thing. How many of you guys have, when you go door to door, you're going to find people are going to just say, wow, what a wonderful thing. You know, I bet there's going to be some prodigals that you're going to run into that your actions, the prayer that you offer, the love that you show to them is going to stir up in them the memory of the Father's house. They're going to say, oh, forgot about that but it was good there it was good so the son heads back to his dad's house and when he is a long way off the bible says the father sees him in the distance and he runs for him now this is just not something again that jesus's hearers would have thought was cool or kosher they would have been like Distinguished landowners do not run. There are still cultures like this. When I have, I, have, I have some wonderful friends and mentors in Ethiopia, and in Ethiopia, if you're a grown man, you don't run. You, you walk and you, you have a, like a swagger. I, I don't even know how to describe it. They just have a, it's just smooth the way that they walk. But I, I'm saying this is what they would have, that's a strange thing. Now, mothers would run, and children would run, but fathers would never run. And in this way, Jesus is saying, the father in my story isn't just, some cult isn't just bound by these cultural norms. He's actually, he's actually loving with abandon. He's not really interested in what anybody else thinks. He's not really interested in breaking the, the, the culture, in, in whether these cultural rules apply or not. He sees his son from a long way off, and he runs. He does like a 50-yard dash. And he greets him, and he embraces him. He covers him up. And some commentators say that he might have even gone so quickly to protect him from the other townspeople who would have, if they saw him, would have come out to get him. <laughs> the father runs to him, says, Get the ring, put it on his finger, get some sandals for his feet, give him a new robe. We have got to get in there and start celebrating 
Now, the, the son starts his, 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 his pitch, right? He's like, okay, Dad, I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to earn my, my keep. I'm no longer your son, but at least I can work and make restitution for what I cost you. And, and, and the father doesn't even want to listen to it. He says, you can't earn your way back into my house. I'm bringing you back in. I'm bringing you back in. And what does he do? He brings the son back in, and the party begins. Start the party. And there ends scene one. Scene two opens up, and the older brother is in the fields working. And he hears the party, and he finds out what is happening, and he gets angry. He's boiling. He says to his dad, in a sense, how dare you, dad? I've worked for you nonstop. Well, this is, remember how he says this? He says, look. He doesn't even give him the dignity of addressing him as father. He says, look. And then he says, this son of yours, he won't even call this man his brother, this son of yours was out living it up, and I was here holding it down. <laughs> you never gave me what I wanted. That's what he says to his dad. He's angry. He's looking down on his younger brother, but also what is he doing? He's even looking down on his dad. Here's what we learn about the older brother. He wasn't any less lost than his younger brother. Point number two, write it down. The older son had all the father's stuff, but he didn't have the father's heart. He had all the father's stuff, but he did not have the father's heart. He says, you gave him a calf? That was like a delicacy back then. You didn't slaughter a calf unless it was a big deal. It was lobster and filet mignon. It was surf and turf. It was whatever you could, whatever your best meal is. That was what this was. He says, how dare you? Do that for him? You know what else he was saying? And this is really important. This is the key to this second part. He was saying, Dad, how dare you spend my inheritance that way? Right? Because the father had divided everything up, and one-third had gone to the younger son, and two-thirds were to the older son. Who is paying for the party? It's the older son. How dare you spend my inheritance that way? I should have some say in this. I have a right over your things. And then he insults his dad by saying this stuff. How does the dad respond? How does the father respond? He, with tenderness, he says, my child, I still want you, and everything I have is yours, but I'm showing you how you should spend it. I'm showing you how you should spend it. Have you ever been offended by God? You're probably too young maybe to be that, but some of you might have been. Actually, I think some of you, I've talked to so many young people who have been offended by God. How dare you, God? How dare you let my parents divorce? How dare you let that happen to me? How dare you? How dare you, God? We think when we get offended at God, we think that in a subtle way we're saying, I know what you should have done instead, God. I know how you should have acted. I know how you should have spent that part of my life. See, I've been offended by God. 
2013, the worst moment of my life, a part of my story that will always be a pivot point for me. My wife of nine years passed away. It wasn't expected. There was no time for goodbyes. And I was, uh, I was wrecked. I don't know, I could go for, on for a long time talking about it. I was wrecked. I was devastated completely. Not only that, I was a little bit offended. <laughs> when I got down to it, I, I, I said, God, what, what are we doing here? I mean, there was a moment in time where I was so angry, I remembered the part of this. It was just this little detail about Ezekiel's story that I remembered, and, and it got me so angry because there's a portion of Ezekiel where God says to Ezekiel, I'm, I'm going to take the love, the apple of your eye. That's what he says. I'm going to take the apple of your eye, Ezekiel, and, and I don't want you to mourn or, or, or cry for her because that's what, it's, that's what it's going to be like when I take the apple, when, when Israel goes away. And then the next verse, you know what it says? And then she died. And let me tell you, I got so angry. I remember, you know where I was? I was in the parking lot of Foxy's Diner in L.A. And I was literally flipping through my Bible, looking for this story in Ezekiel, and I found it there, and I looked at that verse, and then she died, and I said, there it is, God. You don't know what you're doing. And I was offended. And we had a discussion there in the car. I was sitting in a rental car for hours in the parking lot of this little diner. The previous night, I was in such deep despair. I mean, I, 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 was, at, I was at my wits end. It was months. It had been months since she died, and I was still wrestling like this. I had still spent day and night in anguish, and, and I had gotten to this point where I was like, God, how dare you? I can tell you what, what God did. That was, my, that was a moment of turning for me. That was a moment, I don't know how to describe it other than to say that I had a picture in my mind's eye of the cross of Christ. No answer for why God would do this except a vision of the cross that said, I know you're hurt, Steve. I know your anguish. And I did something that day that I had deliberately not done for about five months. I had not told the Lord that I loved him. I mean, I had prayed. I had argued. I would wrestled. I would pled with God. I mean, it wasn't like I was trying to come at him hard all the time like that. But I just couldn't bring myself to say, I love you and I trust you, God. And to that moment. I said, I love you. And I, I said it again. I said, I love you, Lord. I trust you. I love you, Lord. And it, it's like things turned. 
I said, God, it's not my life. I need you to show me how to spend it. I'm not going to double guess. I'm not going to second guess. I'm not going to question. I need you. I want to know how. You, I trust you, God. However you want to spend my life. And at that moment in time, I had no thought. I had no th- I thought, I will never marry again. I'll never have a child. I'll never have a family. I'll just be a lonely man wandering the earth. <laughs> That's actually how I, th- I, I saw it. I, th- I just had no thought of that. I said, okay, God. Little did I know, and I really didn't know, that, that months, months earlier, God had already spoken to, to Jesse's mom in a vision that she had spoken that she had spoken to my mom these specifics about, about how I would remarry and how, how, how she would be about our life and our children even. Go figure. That while I was saying, how dare you, God loved me enough to already be preparing a blessing for me. You see, the older brother missed this. He was offended and he was angry Just like the religious people who were listening to Jesus, they were angry too. Religious people are always angry about something. (laughs) Because deep inside, they're just unsatisfied. They feel like they know better. And so they look down their noses at other people. And they look down even though they would never admit it at the way God operates too. The father comes out to reason with the son, and he says, son, listen, don't you know everything I have is yours, but don't you love your younger brother? Don't you see this is how we should spend this inheritance? Don't you rejoice that he is back home? I mean, in a sense, he's saying, son, don't you realize somebody has to pay for the prodigals? Somebody has to bring back the prodigals. Write it down. Write it down because I, I want you to put a star next to it in whatever your notes are because I hope that you'll come back to your notes for more week because what Pastor Todd shares and what, and what Pastor Tim shares and what Pastor Devin shared, well, all those things are going to be, that hopefully they'll just continue to be things you can reflect on, but I just want you to write it down. Somebody has to pay to bring back the prodigals. You see, what should the older brother have actually done? Let me ask you that. The older brother should have been the one to go find his younger brother, right? He should, a true older brother would have gone out and he would have said, you know, what's it going to cost for me to go to that distant place? I don't know, but I'm going to pay it. Whatever it costs, I'm going to go find my younger brother and I'm going to bring him home. I'm going to go find that fool young boy and I'm going to drag him back to the father's house. Whatever it costs me, I'm going to do it. But here is where you and I see something that Jesus' listeners couldn't see at the time. You see, even as Jesus tells this story, he knows something about what his life and what his mission are all about. The Bible calls Jesus our older brother. It says that we are co-heirs with Christ, you and me. We have that true older brother in Jesus. Every one of us prodigals has left the father's house. And the father had a right to end us, to just kind of write us off and say, okay, well, that's it. Let them go their way. But he loved us too much, and he was humble enough to bear up the rejection from you and I. And I don't know how the conversation went, 
But somewhere there had to be a conversation between father and son where they looked down and saw all those prodigals. And Jesus, our true older brother, said, you know what, Dad? I'm going to go get them. I know what it's going to cost me. I know that everything that you have, Father, is mine as well. But I'm going to go spend it all so that those prodigals will come home. He was wealthy with all the Father's wealth, but he gave it all up so that you and I could be received back to the Father. Someone has to pay for the prodigals to come home. You know what? You and I, I believe you and I are in the Father's house. And there are a lot of prodigals that have to be brought home. Somebody has to pay for those prodigals to come home. Write down two questions. Question number one. I don't know how it's going to be phrased on the screen, but we can just write it like this. Do I love the Father more than his stuff? Do I love the Father more than his stuff? I mean, do you want him or do you just want his stuff? Is he a means to an end or is he the end? This is what Romans 12 says after Paul tells that story. Remember how you, you wrote it down. It said that, that, that what happened is that the, the, the people, they exchanged the stuff of God for God. They said, we want your stuff but not you, God. And then their minds became foolish in their thinking. And then they gave themselves over to all kinds of, of, of shameful lusts. That's what Paul says right there. But then in Romans 12, he says, now in Christ... He says something has happened. That's been flip-flopped. And what he says is present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And what's going to happen? He's going to renew your mind, your thinking, right? So now we're kind of reversing the story. And then in the end, you and I, he says, you're going to actually be able to experience what true worship is. You're going to love the Father more than his stuff. Question number two, write it down. Am I willing to pay for the prodigals. If he has blessed you, will you spend it to bring people to Christ? I'm not just talking about ministry weeks, you guys. I'm not just talking about church events, church-sponsored events. I'm talking about young people Everybody just look at me real quick. I'm talking about young people who see their whole lives as being, first of all, I, they say, I am wealthy with all the riches of my heavenly father. But I'm also wise to know how that's supposed to be spent. And every good thing that God has given me, I'm willing to lay it down to bring prodigals home. That means if God has given you an intellect and a mind, a brilliant mind, and you're going to go and you're going to make lots of money in business or you're going to do great things in, in science or whatever else, that you, that you don't just see that as your thing that you get to keep, but you see it as the thing that God has given you as a means to bring prodigals home. You say, everything that God has given to me, that, not just a war week week, 
not just IDT for those of you who are from Neighborville, not just the, the, the discipleship program, not just weekend services, but everything that God has given me now. God, show me how to spend it the way you would spend it. That's what we're after here tonight. And I feel like that's what this closing time is going to be about. I want you just to close your notebooks. I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to take a moment to let God's Spirit search your heart. Do I love the Father more than his stuff? Do I grow impatient when the words to the song stop? Or do I just delight to be in God's presence? Am I able to pray and seek him? Is there a longing in my heart to be closer to him? Or do I just want the blessings that I think that he owes me? because I serve him. You see, when we get religious, we feel like we're going to put God in our debt that somehow he owes us, and that's the only way that we ever find ourselves saying, how dare you, God? There's some of you here who you know that that's been the way for you, and I want to ask you right now, to say, God, I need you to help me order my loves correctly. You see, disordered loves will always lead to disordered lives. Disordered loves will always lead to disordered priorities and actions. At the heart of every sin is a failure to trust God. So if that's out of order in your life tonight, say, God, I want you. I don't just want your stuff so that times can be good and that things can go well with me, but God, I want you. No matter, come hell or high water, God, I want you. Whatever it is. Whatever you should lead me to. If you need me to walk through grief, God, I'm there with you, Lord. If you need me, need me to endure, I'm going to do it, God, I want you. Whatever it is, Lord, I want you, God. just want you to talk to him where you are. If that's you tonight, just say, God, I want you. I want to help me order my heart, God. You know, the only way to do that, God's spirit is alive in you doing that for you. We just need to ask him. We need to, to take a step back and say, okay, God, I need you to order my heart. I need you to order my loves. God will do that. We're just going to 
take a moment here and respond. We're going to say, Lord, I love you. I love you. I don't just love the stuff that you bring to me. I don't just love the blessings that, you, that, that are mine because I'm your son or I'm your daughter. I love you, Father. Young people, I've got to tell you, this is, this is key here. This is what we want to develop here at War Week. We're not looking for your emotions to be stirred. We're not just looking for us to go out and do a good thing or to send great pictures home and say, oh, look, look what we all accomplished together. We're looking to see young people whose hearts would, would, would there be nurtured in those hearts a love for the Father that you would see him as beautiful as he is. I don't know if you know this song, but we're going to do it tonight because I think Winky Prattney would want us to do it. <laughs> it was written by somebody that he really loved and that went to be with the Lord. And so we try and make it a point to sing it here together because it was the heart of somebody who loved the Father. We're just going to tell it to the Lord. You're beautiful, God. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your faith is all I see for when your eyes are on this child your grace abounds to me thank you for listening to this War Week 2016 message We invite you to check out the rest of the podcast from this event and be encouraged by God's word.